to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Hi, guys. Thanks for the patience on the incommunicado for the past couple weeks. I work in the customer service industry, so legitimately I've been working like six days a week, and on my days off, I'm just trying to get everything else done. But I would like to thank our new Patreon supporters while I'm here. I'd like to thank John, Brendan Sheck Snyder, and Cara DiMazio. Thank you so much for helping support the collective and keeping this going. And I appreciate all the support while I've been gone and that you guys haven't all disappeared. I promise it'll get better. I think after New Year's, it'll slow down a lot because people stop going out to eat as much because you were working out and such (laughs) but thank you again for your patience i'm trying to catch up on everything and sleep and do christmas anyways why am i on this podcast what's going on (laughs) yeah so welcome back collective obviously maxwell's back he's officially recorded with me in every place i've lived so you're one of two people the last time yeah i think so last time we recorded i was still living in uh in wood manhattan before I yeah. had a, a late twenties crisis and ended up on the other side of the literal. I planet. might be joining you. You never know. Oh please! <laughs> I would love more friends here. It's great. It's like yeah, and I was imagine if Los Angeles or New York had a more laid back racist baby <laughs> and it was sunnier. That's Sydney. That was like the best. It's just like Australia <laughs> is basically healthcare racism and sunshine i need healthcare so that's really tempting i also Um, like i also want to make it very clear that the people that i associate with are trying to change the racist angle a lot and not all (laughs) hashtag not all australians they're they're actually really great people and there's a lot of like good progressive movements it's just uh, it's in a bad place right now but isn't everywhere yeah it just takes time to fight Mm -hmm. it yeah, and I was in Washington. I believe we had so much trouble recording, too, because the Wi-Fi there sucked. <sighs> Washington, man. Yeah. I just remember I missed part so much of your story, and you're like, you didn't comment as much. And I couldn't like, hear it. I couldn't hear it. It's like, editing will be a surprise for once. But yeah, so we're going to do some fun, fun things. Yes. You're going to start with... A ki- like, I've never even heard Whoa. of this. I was so Buckle excited up. when you brought it up. I have, I'm covered by blankets, so that'll have to be my bundling. Cause I, my heaters are very loud. <laughs> okay, so this is a story I've, I'd actually wanted to do for my podcast, Relic, the Lost Treasure podcast. Um, just going to promo and plug that one right there. Um, but Yeah, plug it as much oh, as I you will. want. <laughs> but after giving it some thought and analysis, I realized... There wasn't really a lost treasure element at work here. There was just an unsolved mystery and perhaps a crime. So in the archaeological and historical community, this story would be referred to in an academic sense as absolutely fucking nuts. (laughs) Can I swear? Am I allowed to swear? You know, when you write your papers... You can believe that. Yeah. Oh, okay. There yeah. you go. We, I, we don't do that on my 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 show. Is very family friendly, so I will get it all out. Oh, mine's explicit for a reason. <laughs> Anyways, this is Courtney, the tale of the Persian princess. Yes. I know it's or 
I was thinking of Are You Afraid of the Dark when they like say this is the tale of the man with the hook for an eye and they throw the smoke, they throw the sand into the fire and it explodes and some 90 CGI credits come up. That's basically what I was going for there. Anyways, this story begins at the turn of the millennium or two millennia ago, depending on who you believe. So this scene is Karachi, the capital of Pakistan. In October of 2000, local Pakistani authorities are tipped off to a Karachi man named Ali Akbar, who has been circulating a videotape. And on this videotape, which I think is a VHS, maybe it's Betamax, I don't know what Pakistan was rolling with in the <laughs> turn of the millennium, but there's... Probably probably VHS. So, I think we're, I think we were all VHS at Even that in point. the Middle East. So Ali is recording. Yeah. He's basically recording this. Just go into your, your image bar. Yep, I have it open. Can we just picture anything you're recording in that period? You have a huge thing. I just remember my parents would go to videotape things and they have to get like a suitcase out and open up and take the VHS recorder out. And oh yeah, that's sit. what I'm imagining. So do you see that? Oh, that's spooky. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, but yeah, spooky. Beautiful but spooky is how I would describe this whole story. So what it is, because obviously your, our listeners can't, or your <laughs> listeners rather can't see that, is is a um, it's a coffin. A coffin with a mummy inside it. It's an it looks like a wooden yeah, coffin, Yeah, so it's too. an ornate, very old-looking casket with a mummy inside. So this next part is pretty important, important and succinct, so I'm just going to quote archaeology.org. Quote, After interrogation, Akbar led police to the remains, which were being kept in the house of the tribal leader, Wali Mohammed Riki Nkweta, the capital of Pakistan's southwestern Baluchistan province, which borders Iran and Afghanistan. So not the most stable place in the world. Um, that's my, that's no, quote mine, no. not theirs. Riki told police he had received the mummy from Sharif Shah Bahi, an Iranian who allegedly found it after an earthquake in a nearby town. Uh, Riki and Bahi had agreed to sell the mummy and split the profits. Akbar's role is less clear. Riki said an unidentified representative, an, an anonymous foreign buyer, had offered 60 million rupees, which is 1.1 million in um, then American money, m- m- money for the mummy. That's hard to say. <laughs> well below, well below the 600 million rupee or 11 million asking price. Riki and Akbar were charged with violating Pakistan's Antiquity Act, which carries a 10-year maximum sentence. Uh, apparently Baki escaped because he remains at large, end quote. Now, I remember, that's from, like, around 10, 17 years ago, so who knows what could have happened in the interim. Yeah, I mean, think of, like, think of how crazy that is, though, to just stumble across this guy hawking VHS tapes, like, hey, you want to see a mummy? Well, I think, yeah, I think the whole, it was basically a promo tape, so it's, like, you know, the equivalent of, like, uh, a Billy Mays, God rest his soul, like, OxyClean, like, do you want to buy a mummy? Great! This one has got gold (laughs) breastplate. It is in a coffin. It comes from Persia. Did you know that Persia had mummies? Well, you do now. For only this limited time offer, you could be the owner of this priceless mummy. It's basically what it was. Um, And I I really hope it was exactly like that. Yeah. And the Victorian, the English Victorians were like, Oh, yes. I want that mummy. Because they love them some mummies. Didn't they, like, eat They had paint. Didn't they, like, eat them or something? They turned them into paint. So they had a step. It was, like, a specific color. It was, like, mummy paint. That, um, 
probably ate them. Let's not lie. They were odd yeah, people. Victoria, man. Anyways, so <laughs> what the hell, right? Now that the mummy, so um, the mummy basically falls under the jurisdiction of the Pakistani government, which has, of course, an illegally acquired antiquity in their hands. So they bring their state archaeologists to analyze it and see what's going on. So on October 26th, Islamabad's Qaid Azam, Arab is not my first language, university announces. You're doing a great job. My sister speaks Arab. Arabic, Arab, ooh, Arabic, uh, Arab, the people, Arabic, the language. Uh, so she could probably help yeah. out here. So the, this university announces the findings, and this is when they blow everyone out of the water. Actually, they come out and say that it appears that the mummy is actually a Persian princess dated to around 600 BC. When the coffin was open, they found a gilded ins- like a gilded in- inscription on a breastplate, so kind of just like a big fancy name tag uh, around like the wrappings around her chest, and it named her as Rodugan. Oh, shoot. Rodugana is as best as I can do it. There's probably a little there, but Rodugana, yeah. a previously unknown daughter of the king of King Xerxes of Persia. Now, this is a big deal on multiple levels. One, King Xerxes is one of history's most famous emperors, commonly known, mm-hmm. really terribly portrayed in a very homophobic way in 300, yeah. which is a bad movie. Um, to uh, Yeah, if you want to... <laughs> Let's see, if you want to know more about that, check out History of Persia. They are covering it and Darius and all of that. So Is it a podcast? Check that out if you want. Yeah, oh, nice. a podcast. Uh, Persia is so fascinating, and I'm not going to go down that the, the route of why I think Iran needs to be treated with a little bit more sensitivity by Americans. But anyways, so yeah, there's actually there's very little written about uh, King Xerxes' children, and now one of them suddenly popped up. Uh, three in this statement. There isn't a lot written about how the Persians buried their dead. So now all of a sudden we know they practice mummifications like the Egyptians. So this is huge. Yeah. Uh, now the easiest thing to do would be to post what this mummy looked like on your website for when you release this episode. So uh, you can provide your listeners with pictures. But um, essentially I'm going to send you one right now so we can kind of take a look at it together. You saw like the kind of close up. Yeah spooky you know yeah it's 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 beautiful beautiful spooky which is honestly goals um so i'm gonna describe it so basically it is looks like an egyptian mummy in the style and we usually think of egyptian mummies as being like wrapped in bandages but you gotta think of it more as someone in like kind of encased in kind of a plaster of paris so they're in a gilded coffin which is very pretty and uh they're wearing so just almost imagine like a piece of like a loaf of like uncooked bread in person form. <laughs> yeah, it actually is. I'm sorry. And I'm also sorry for many reasons that will become apparent as I go into this uh, diatribe. But there's the gilded breastplate where, like, the chest would be, which kind of is the inscription, which uh, says, I am Redugana, daughter of King Xerxes. There's a very beautiful golden death mask, so kind of a vague outline of a face, and then a really neat-looking crown, also made out of, like, gold, or what appears to be gold foil or flake, around there where their head would be. So the coffin had been carved with a large uh, image of what I believe is a Zoroastrian image. It's that uh, the figure with with the the wings. Do you know what I'm talking about? Look it up. It, I think so. Zoroastrianism. Yeah. yeah. So the mummy was atop a layer of wax and honey and was covered by a stone slab 
and had a golden crown on its brow. This is from Wikipedia, so this is just cheating a bit. Uh, she was the relatively unknown Verdugna, which I could not figure out because of this story, whether that name had been known or spoken about in research into Xerxes' life, or this was kind of just like, this is just Verdugna. I'm, you know, the long-lost mummy-daughter of King Xerxes. What's up? Um yeah. But, or if she was, it was probably just like, oh, this, like we know there's a daughter, but we don't know, like we just yeah, know her name. Exactly. So right away, archaeologists begin to dig deeper because there's so much that is potentially groundbreaking about this money, but there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't feel like it's lining up. So the big outlier is that history says the Persians didn't practice mummification. The argument, to the contrary, is. The people being like, well, it didn't say they didn't practice mummification. One theory is that Princess Rudugana was either married to an Egyptian prince and took on his religion, so she was buried in the custom of her and her husband's faith. Another is that she was born in Egypt, which Xerxes did own for a very short time until they rebelled against him. Um, but even all of that is so much a stretch because, uh, I mean, it just had literally a lot of people in Middle Eastern antiquities kind of scratching their heads at this. Now, a first yeah. major sign, well, I mean, I feel like there's already major signs something's amiss, but one of the big red flags was that the insurers were called to the museum because you need to insure every artifact because, you know, heaven forbid somebody's oh, still yeah. a mummy. They tried to assess the mummy and were reluctant to provide any insurance until further analysis could be undertaken. So already there were people who are like, this is, this is fishy. This seems like, have you watched the, it's a British show or the name of it, but it's basically... They go... Is it Mysteries at the Museum? Uh, no, it's a different one. It's basically, they go through and they'll... I had it saved. Um, they go through and they'll go with people and be like, is they'll be like, oh, this is my family's work. It's supposed to be this artist. And they go through and pick, figure out if it's faked or if it's real and help people get like the providence because sometimes it gets lost. And for people who don't know, providence basically in a piece of art or in antiquity is from its discovery up until you get it. So all the bills of sale, all the authentication, everything like that. So with this, it seems kind of authentic because you said they were pre- she was preserved in honey, which is a long, old-time preserving method. But I'm also surprised that people didn't offer to eat that because what, what was the latest mummy thing they found? They were like, can we try the juices? Uh, yeah, what like, is with people when you eat mummies? What about this is in any sense appealing? Yeah, it's the, the creepy no. coffin they found in Alexandria that I actually did a brief episode on where they're like, can we eat the juices of the coffin and gain a mortal life or something? Yep. It's just humanity's no, thank really you. upsetting sometimes. Arguably yep. most of the time. <laughs> so another problem with this mum was that once they said, oh, she's a Persian princess, the government of Iran, mm-hmm. which is known to be uh, a little intense, just, just slightly. In a way that countries that have been historically fucked over sometimes have a little bit of wiggle room to be. Uh, like I said, Iran is a complicated beast. I have a lot of opinions uh, about yeah. Iran that would probably solve the domestic dispute between the U.S. and Iran. So maybe the government should hire me. But also the government should definitely not hire me. <laughs> it reminds me, I saw a great history meme and it was a picture of the Middle East. And it said, Draw, di- divide up the Middle East however you see fit. And someone goes, but that's not a good idea. It's like, they're like, yeah, that's what the British and the French did. Like, don't worry about people's relationships and, and tr- like different and groups. And religious variations no. and, and history. Yeah, just so just kind of draw easy lines. Yeah. 
Um, the good news is that if any country in the Middle East hears this, maybe they'll let them come poke around at their lost treasures. I don't know. I'm on your side. <laughs> However, if the U.S. government hears this, I will probably be extradited and thrown in prison. Anyways, love the U.S., <laughs> love the Middle East. Why don't you two get along, kids? So the government of Iran did rightfully say it should be returned to them because Iran, spoilers, is actually Persia. <laughs> That's a very simplified way of saying that, but... Uh, yeah, what was it? Um, Iran is the majority of what we would recognize as the successor to Persia. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what they changed because the Shah of Iran's father, just if, if I remember correctly, kind of was a fan of the whole Aryan that kind of trademarky stuff and change the name of Persia to Iran. Like a little bit of a, of a rebranding? Yeah, like a little bit of rebranding and that he really liked Hitler's ideology. Well, think that once the Shah was like overthrown or deposed, they might have changed it back, but I, I guess you know. It's sure. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so Iran <laughs> wanted it back because it was a Persian princess and like, this should be ours because that's our national heritage, bros. Do you know who also wants... Which, which is, is fair. fair. Less, less fair. Do you know who also wanted it? The U.S.? No, no, the British no. Museum? The Taliban. So this is pre-2001. What? The Taliban wanted it because, I remember, I don't know, they're weird and desperate for money or something. Um, they're about to have a whole other mess on their hands in another few months. Yeah. Line, but uh, eventually they decide to put... Um, Osama wanted to decorate his, with, his house you know, in Islamabad? The, it's a Persian princess's estate in peace, if anything. Um... <laughs> So eventually they decide to put, I wrote Our Princess, which is I feel like very heartfelt considering what happens, in the National Museum of Pakistan because it's the Middle East and nobody agrees on anything ever. So enter into the story. Finally, America does pop up, but I would argue that America is actually the good guy in this, or at least helps facilitate with some actual Pakistani good guys as well. Uh, and a, a good lady turns out the truth behind everything. This this guy is Amer- uh, Oscar White Muscarella. Now, Courtney, can you describe the photo of this gentleman to your listeners? Oh yes. Please. I, I'm me. trying to, to copy and paste it, and it's not oh. happening. That would have been really great if the time does. Well, this guy doesn't have a beard, but this guy's an archaeologist, and boy, does he look like it. You see him? Are you about to see him? It's like, okay, there we go. No. Oh, wait. Oh, yep. There we go. Oh. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you describe this man? So, he looks like Bella Lugosi with a black pipe, just like he's done with everyone's shit. He's got the big bushy eyebrows, like the receding hairline, black hair. Yeah, like Bella Lugosi if he was an archaeologist, just to mention and, that. And he looks like an archaeologist, like it's the pipe. And I think, and like the best part is that he's like, in this photo, he's exhaling smoke, so it looks like he's kind of vaping. <laughs> with the with the giant, like it's an enormous pipe. Like it's almost comical. <laughs> it's it's a it's it's a little cab gandalf smoked like is that a, like one of those rounded pipes that's what yeah, i it's expect. like Mary sherlock holmes so mr yeah. muscarella is a renowned archaeologist and a bit of a thorn of the side of museums all across the world because of his extremely efficient eye for detail when it comes to authenticating antiquities or debunking forgeries he is also a major opponent of the illicit antiquities trade and is not afraid to call museums for practicing shady dealings and acquiring their collections. So basically, he's my hero. Uh, he worked. I wonder what he thinks about the Hobby Lobby shit. Oh, he's probably disgusted. I, I wonder if he had any sort of hand in that. He's been retired since 2009. So at the time of this 
story, which took place in 2001 to 2008, he was still active. But um, uh, he worked for the yeah. Museum of Metropolitan Art for 40 years. He's an expert in forgeries. He catches wind of this mummy and immediately gets suspicious and for a very good reason. So the year before, the Pakistani authorities caught on to this like illegal tape with you, you can, you sir, can be the owner of a Persian princess. Um, he was actually approached by a New Jersey gentleman named Abmanala Rigi, who I believe was an Iranian national. He might have been Pakistani. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Amer- I think like an American citizen, but with ties to. that country of Pakistan or Iran. He showed him, Muscarella, some photographs of the same exact mummy in an attempt to sell it to him. Now, Rigi's story was that the mummy had come into the country by way of a family of Zoroastrians, and they believed she was the daughter of Xerxes. Uh, So Zoroastrianism is an old monotheistic religion that comes from Persia. That is the guy with big wings, the icon of the big big eagle wing guy that's that yeah that ties into that that's kind of like the, basically the, the religious branding in the way that uh, a cross is to christianity or a star of david is to uh judaism this is the branding for uh zoroastrianism so muscarella immediately challenged this claim because that's what he does he asked for a sample of the coffin to be sent to his offices and didn't think he was going to hear anything back because he's like, this is this is BS. I'm calling the bluff. Well, the seller was so confident. Is, that, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, um, it's uh, those people who mess with the scam artists who like send them things like email you like I have this like Nigerian prince opportunity and they're like, oh, please do tell me more. And they just then they're like comedians normally who just fuck with um, like spammers on your like. It email. was the antiquities version of that. Well, the seller was so confident <laughs> that he did send like a small piece of the coffin or like a sliver of it over. Uh, carbon dating was done on it and it was found that it was only 250 years old. So still old, but not that old. Yes. And it's enough that it was like, this is less old, but still old enough that I have questions. Do you know? So independent. Yeah, you're just like, you piqued my interest, but not for the reason yeah, you I want. Yeah, I mean, so it's like very clear something strange is already going on here. So independent of this, a Pakistani professor named Ahmad Dani, who is the director of the Institute of Asian Civilizations in Islamabad, uh, decided to do a deep analysis himself. I also just realized, what is the capital of Pakistan? Is it Islamabad or Karachi? Because now I'm confused. It's Islamabad. It is Islam- okay. okay. Uh, All right, let's look oh, it up. Shoot. Because I was confident that it was one or the other, and now... I'm pretty sure it's Islamabad. Yeah, it's Islamabad. So he discovered that... I'm just going to make sure Karachi is in Pakistan and not Afghanistan. It is Pakistan. Okay, perfect. Uh, so he... <laughs> I've just felt really stupid. There's so many fun I know. names. So like, in this analysis... Uh, Professor Donnie discovered that the mummy was much, 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 much younger than the coffin. And the mat underneath the mummy, which had like all the honey and the stuff on it, that was like only five years old. And granted, I heard so plugging slash shout out. My favorite murder did an episode on this. And then thinking sideways, rest in peace, also did an episode on this. And I forget if one of the two were just joking, but someone used the word pure one decorative mat and i think they might have just been like trying to be funny i don't think they actually in the forgery they used a pure one mat but that that would be hilarious um it's interesting because there's so much right 
that they got around this mummy, and as we'll find out, so much they got wrong, that it's very interesting, <laughs> the amount of detail that went into it, and that was also missed. So, the spelling on the mummy's breastplate was also a tip-off, something was wrong, because the Persian form should have been uh, Wadugana, and not Radugana, and those are spelled differently. Radugana is the Greek way of saying it. There was also modern, uh, okay. uh, like a modern pencil, like a guideline marks, like you know how when you're sketching something? that were discovered that yeah. they forgot to erase on the adornment of the coffin. So it was... Really? Are you kidding me? That's so, like, it's... <laughs> what? So it was pretty clear all this Come was fake. But that left one major question. If this wasn't a 2,000-year-old mummy, then who the hell was in that coffin? Oh, my... Was it a murder? So Donnie realizes this is a big deal and gets in touch with arguably one of the major heroes of the story, Garden Heroes, Asma Ibrahim who is the director of the Museum and Art Gallery Department of the State Bank of Pakistan. So she's brilliant. She's an archaeologist, and uh, Professor Dani obviously trusts her to get to the bottom of this mystery, which she kind of does. So Ibrahim realizes right away that what they're dealing with here is something that goes beyond just an antiquities forgery. Like, this is weird. So she arranges for the mummy to undergo cat and x-ray scans at Khan Hospital in Pakistan. And this is what they find. The mummy's organs have been removed, which is traditionally what you would see with a mummy, but here's the big catch. The, the heart has also been removed. Now, this isn't in keeping with Egyptian mummification customs, because when you, you remove the organs for a, a traditional Egyptian burial, you do leave the heart intact inside the corpse because the idea is when the deceased passes on into the afterlife, Anubis, the god of death, jackal, head, uh, has to weigh the heart on the scale against a feather to see if you're innocent or not. And then you either go into the afterlife or you get fed to a snake. Big giant snake thing. So the analysis also <laughs> discovered that the corpse's tendons uh, like the muscle connecting tissue stuff, which should have long since decayed over the centuries, were still somewhat fresh. Oh no! Yeah. Oh, big oh no! So at this point, everyone is freaking out, and the Antiquities and Institutes of Pakistan are royally embarrassed. Royally embarrassed. Uh, Iran and the Taliban immediately go quiet, trying to get the mummy back. And Asma Ibrahim releases <laughs> her findings in April of two thousand of one. 2001. 2001. Uh, the findings are, to put as likely, shocking. So the mummy of the so-called Persian princess is, in actuality, the mutilated corpse of an unidentified woman, 21 to 25 years, whose death is dated to 1996, which would only have been a few years before the mummy was put on the black market. Her cause of death is blunt force trauma to the lower back or pelvic region, which is usually the trademark of someone being hit by a car from behind. Uh, oh, okay. Her teeth had been removed and the body embalmed with a powder to essentially mummify her. Uh, the police are obviously brought back in because now this is officially a suspicious death. Uh, far from being a Persian yeah. princess Radugana, we now have an unidentified Jane Doe. The authorities surmise that the woman was most likely from the border region of Pakistan and Afghanistan, which is a bit like the Wild West now, and who certainly was back yeah. then. Uh, it's often under the jurisdiction of various extremist militants at any given time. And remember that this story took place before September 11, 2001. So by the time any sort of investigations could be undertaken in earnest, that whole region was just 
just captured in warfare and a mess. So what gets even creepier is that the police follow this trail and find two more fake mummies, concluding that all of these forge these forgeries are being done by the same group of people. Your face just now, by the way. What? I just did the And it's just it, it just it's I did the meme I did the meme where it's like, huh? Maybe. I was like, what? Yeah, you did a little what? bit of the kombucha girl. Um Yeah. Uh, so now, who that group is doing all these forgeries is still unknown. Ugh. The Pakistani what? police do arrest suspects, but I couldn't find anything conclusive about what happened to them. Part of the problem is that you have so many splinter groups and cells from, like, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda who might associate themselves with, but not necessarily work with the big names, that it's hard to pinpoint who ac- actually did this. Now, things in the world of Islamic extreme terrorists were a little bit more cohesive back before the dark times, but uh, there's certainly a lot more split through now. But even so, it's not like everyone kind of had like their own like sort of sports league of terrorism. So some people were like, maybe yeah. just this local village's homegrown rapscallion terrorist group who wasn't affiliated with al-qaeda or the taliban but kind of worked alongside them yeah people don't realize that until we get like islamic extremism for a long time was very scattered and they might have someone who goes along and like says okay this we're al-qaeda this is like our our ideology and all this the internet and like widespread cell phones in the region has made it a lot more cohesive and so really probably until 2008 2000, like when you think of cell phones like when iphones get really popular here that's when everyone's probably getting regular cell phones there and like starting it like all of that so that's when like extremism really changed before it was like old school you need the local cells you have to everyone had like you need a connection to the different leaders so yeah it could have just been a bunch of guys like maybe some people went off to join the taliban maybe some people went off and joined al-qaeda maybe someone stayed and kept local extremism alive and all also, form. it's important that there are probably locals who didn't do any of that because not everyone is, mm-hmm. you know, an extremist. There are probably ones that joined up with the local warlords who were against the Taliban because yeah. extremists are extreme and they impose rules and regulations on traditions that you might have held sacred for hundreds of years that might be secular. And you can practice Islam in that region of the world and be totally cool with everyone and not be an extremist and want to keep your way of life. So in yeah. fact, many of these groups uh, might have been militias or warlike in the sense of a defense force, and they might have been against the Taliban. Because when you look at the U.S. Army, a yeah. lot of them worked with tribal leaders, and I and I hate that word warlord, but like this is kind of what we're dealing with. Um, but like for yeah, the it's right reasons, or like or right-ish reasons. Yeah, yeah. Think of um, think of how thirteen colony the thirteen colonies had militias. So you have li- your local militia, your local uh, leader who's in charge of that and in charge of calling them up. That's that's the closest thing Americans and probably Europeans have like a kind of a mindset or like your local lord who has his like his army. He can call up his knights. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're it's being the attacked same thing. by the Taliban or you know ISIS, you would call them up and they would send their you know forces to drive them out of your village, so they don't get a foothold there. Yeah. Essentially, is what we're talking about. And like also like to kind of shine a light on America, you like you look at various right wing right wing groups. They're not always aligned. 
with each other's ideologies yeah. as well. So this is kind of the state of this region. Now imagine if a right-wing group decided to forge a mummy, and it's not necessarily one of the big ones. That's kind of what we're dealing with. So one of the reasons why it might actually not be the Taliban behind it is that they wanted the mummy back, um, yeah. so that would might have ruled them out. And it could have just been, been an affiliate who didn't give them the heads up or something that they were trying to make a forgery. <laughs> so though it doesn't really make the story any better, it might help everyone sleep at night. Uh, to know that uh, one of the theories presented was that this woman might have actually been murdered. She might have just died in an accident and then been grave robbed shortly after her death. So it's possible that the culprits dug up this entire this woman who died in an accident and then just, you know, desecrated the remains and turned them into a mummy. Which neither is great. None of that is okay. But... But it's better than none of it is okay. But you kind of yeah, you hope it's not murder. So, anyways, the story gets sadder, and we're kind of coming to an end here. Uh, since the mummy became becomes an archaeological and national embarrassment, the corpse of this unidentified person just sits in protective storage in the museum until 2005, when the museum is approached by the Ehi Foundation. Now, I did a very quick look into this foundation, and they're actually pretty cool. So basically, they're a social welfare network that was started by a Pakistani philanthropist in the 1950s, when the country was relatively young, because I believe the partition of Pakistan and India was 1947. There's a Doctor Who episode about yes, that. Yes, 47. That's why I learned that. Uh, that's a hot mess. Well, uh, the Doctor Who episode okay, was of- actually about that episode of Doctor Who, Courtney, was very informative. Uh I don't think I've seen that episode of Doctor Who. I just meant the division of Pakistan. Oh, it was a mess. And that episode actually is about how much of a mess it was. But I digress. Just just imagine that people being like, well, if you're if you're Hindu, you should be south of this border. If you're Muslim, you should be north of this border. And then kind of be like, this is the day it's going to happen. And it's tomorrow. And mass murders. Yeah, it's like tomorrow. There's mass murders. There's no help getting there. I believe a t- couple between five and ten million people had to move, and then uh, a couple million. It's murdered. terrible. It's and it doesn't get it's, talked about enough. Um, so the Eddie Foundation, this is from Wikipedia, provides twenty-four hour emergency assistance across the nation of Pakistan and abroad. The foundation provides, among other services, shelter for the destitute, free hospitals and medical care, drug rehab services, national and international relief efforts. Um, their focus is emergency service or the orphaned, um, people living with disabilities, shelters, education, health care, uh, blood banks, air ambulance, marine coastal services. So I guess it's kind of this pseudo-privatized nonprofit social welfare system. So the foundation takes custody of the mummy because, like, they're good guys. That's what they do. So they can be properly and formally buried. They hold on to it under the impression that authorities will want to come in and keep testing on it in hopes that the crime can be... I have to keep calling it it. It's a woman. She is a woman. Presumably, based on the... You know. Uh, So they want this crime to be solved. uh, But the authorities never come back for her the eddie foundation makes numerous attempts and inquiries but everyone seems to have forgotten about the body or doesn't care so they kind of uh, give up and decide to formally bury her in 2008 so that's kind of well that's good that she at least gets reburied like that's she had so many horrible things happen to her after her death like well one her death was traumatic and then she's dug up made a mummy tried to be sold as something else and then being tested on 
And at least she gets reburied. Yeah. And another silver lining, just so this end of the story isn't a uh, total bummer, is that in 2016, an artist named Hilly Greenfield, who is rather prolific in the Middle Eastern art scene, put on an exhibition in Jerusalem called The Persian Princess as a tribute to the unknown Aww. female who was mummified and put on the black market. Greenfield wanted to focus on basically how total nonsense it was that everyone lost interest in the story when it was discovered that a mummy that the mummy wasn't a fictional princess, but a real anonymous death and possibly a murder victim. Uh, so the goal is basically to shame the archaeological community for not really following through with seeking justice. As of November 2019, the mystery behind the identity of the so-called Persian princess who she was, what really happened to her, and who killed her remains unsolved. And that is the story of the Persian princess. Oh my god, that's insane. Because you start off thinking it's like this historical event, like, oh, we found this princess. And then people are like, uh, but it's not quite right. And then you move into, it could be a murder victim. But we don't know because no one gave a shit enough to figure it out. It's... And it's just, and, like, there's so much, like, other unsaid politics. Like, throughout this story, I kept thinking, guys, around the time all this is happening is when 9-11 is happening. So, of course, a lot of attention yeah. is diverted. And that's, I think that's why I, that's maybe this is a little narcissistic. I've only heard about this in the last couple of years. And it seems like yeah. podcasts and, like, the unsolved Reddit milieu of the internet has also only begun talking about the last few years because... While all of this was happening, there was just kind of this traumatic conflict in the Middle East. So it stands to reason that, of course, you know, no one was going to really be on top of something like this on an international level because everyone's hands were tied with other matters. And, you know, in, in the midst of all that chaos, so much crazy stuff was happening with antiquities where people were trying to protect them from ISIS, like in the Palmyra, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it. Hobby Lobby was buying them. Oh, yeah, which is, that's a whole other story that I want to, like, talk about just so I can be angry at Hobby Lobby, yeah. but, but, yeah. For other reasons besides the standard I reasons? Know, it's, they're problematic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, and think about it, the, probably the only way to determine who it is now, because so much forced migration has happened through that region, is to do it through D DNA. There's no other way. Absolutely. So, where can people find you? Oh, who oh. can find me at Relic, the Lost Treasure Podcast, which is on iTunes. It's on Spotify. Uh, Relic, Lost Treasure Podcast is on Stitcher. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. Uh, that's that's really it. I've been doing kind of these sort of shorter episodes because time uh, with Courtney. Yeah. That are called the Trove, which are in between the weekly releases. So you're still getting content, but you're also getting me not going insane. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of like the week in archaeological, or the month rather, in archaeological uh, discoveries and kind of like a weird world as it relates to unearthing history. So yeah, you'll be, you'll be hearing a lot of Courtney as well. Yeah. So next week, Maxwell would be back to hear my horrible horrible story and yeah we'll see you then bye. bye the mona lisa the hope diamond the sarcophagus of king to uncommon humanity has accumulated hundreds upon hundreds of priceless artifacts and treasures each one the physical embodiment of a certain time and place but for all of humankind's greatest achievements we also kind of suck 
For every priceless painting on display in the Louvre, there is another masterpiece stolen and bartered off in an underground auction, or even collecting dust in your grandmother's attic. Each week, Relic, the Lost Treasure podcast, explores the strange, but mostly true, tales behind history's greatest lost treasures. If you like unsolved mysteries and true crime, with maybe a little less murder, but certainly a few weird deaths, then you should come along on the journey. Join me, Maxwell, as I dig beneath the couch cushions of history. You can find Relic on iTunes, or stream us at relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. Adventure awaits. Hi, I'm Ben, the host of Dark History's podcast. Every other week, I turn my eye towards the fringe and unsolved aspects of our history. In each episode, I dig deep to bring you tales from large cultural events to smaller localised legends, from Victorian poisonings to cults, and from the unknown to the simply unexplainable. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and all other platforms, or head directly to darkhistories.com. I hope you'll come join me soon to delve into the underbelly of the strange. of domesticity we're available on all podcatchers remember to rate review subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it our facebook and twitter are at domestic podcasts and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free <laughs>